Join me behind the scenes as I introduce you to my friends, the people who make your favorite films and TV shows, the people who make the sounds of Hollywood. I'd like to introduce you to one of my friends, Lori Slomka. Lori. Hi. Hello. How you doing? Nice Good. to see you. Welcome. I'm very excited to have you here. You have one of the most interesting careers in post-production sound. Your first credit was in 1985. Yeah. Yeah. 1985, probably Clue. Clue. That's right. Yeah. And you were a sound assistant on Clue. In those days, I mean, I actually, before that, I had worked for Aaron Spelling. Well, you come from a sound family, right? Sound family. Your My dad. dad was a sound supervisor. He did Raging Bull and Close Encounters. Um, so in, you grew up in the Hollywood sound world. I grew up in it. I understood it. I always wanted to do it. Yeah, your father, Chester, is a little bit of a legend. Yeah, he didn't want me in the business. He didn't allow it. I went behind his back, mostly because in those days, in the early 80s, there were very, very few women. It was a male-dominated industry, and he didn't want, you know, his little girl to be involved with people that had, you know, were using bad language or whatever, you know? Oh, boy. Oh, I know, and I had a trucker's mouth from that day on. Um, but I did start with spelling, and then, it, you know, in those days, you had to get into the union, and a friend of mine was able to get me into the union on Clue, and in... On Clue, I was the apprentice sound editor, which we were all on film. So everything was on film. The sound was on film, the Foley, which is all the footsteps and the ambient sounds. Everything had to be built separately into reels, thousand foot reels on film. There was no digital. There was no tape. Everything was done on film. 35 millimeter mag. And completely different than the way we do it today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no comparison. It it took much longer to get anything done because film, you couldn't fast forward. Right. You know, film runs at 24 frames per second and you had to go, if you made a change, you had to stop down everything, go into another room, put it all, take it apart, put it back together. And it it just took a lot longer for things. People really knew their craft. So you had to be an apprentice editor. And then, you know, print a sound editor or music editor, um, picture editor. Then you had to serve a certain amount of time as an assistant. And you couldn't get around that. There was no way to just jump from walking in the door to becoming an editor. Right, because you didn't have these machines at home right. to practice with like people do now. Exactly. They have their computers at home. They're using the same tools that we as professionals are using. They can get their skills up, but nobody had mag machines at home. Right, like, or movieolas. Right. You know, I, I have my movieola now, but <laughs> people are like, what the <laughs> hell is that? Um, so I would yes, be like, what the hell is that if I saw it? I we did, and I was very fortunate that I, you know, I worked on Clue <clears throat> with a, a great talented team that is still doing it today. Um the sound guys. And then from there, I think I did nine and a half weeks. And you eventually went from apprentice to music editor. Well, no, I went from apprentice to assistant because you couldn't become an editor. So I became an assistant. I was working in picture and I met two music editors while I was working on a picture with Dee Dee Allen called Offbeat. And the music editors had told me one was Marianne Brandon, who became a picture editor. She's done huge, huge pictures. And then Michael Tronic. And the one thing they taught me in those days is if you're cutting 
as a picture editor, you have a rhythm. There's just a rhythm to it. And picture editors can make good music editors and music editors can make good picture editors because you have that rhythm to storytelling. And I always remembered that, that, you know, it was, I was in, I loved music. I always loved music. And after I met with them, I got a call from one of the very first music editors in this industry. Her name was Irma Levin, asked me if I wanted to come work with her. So I agreed. I was a music apprentice for short period of time. And then the union allowed me to become an assistant for about two years before I started doing editing on my own. And during that two years, you learn all the tricks of the trade, you know, from the editors that you're working with. You sat with the editors, you did all the grunt work, you know, we had apprentice editors. It nothing you had a bigger crew because it took a lot more. There was no such thing as a PA. There was, you know, you hauled your own film. It was, right, there's no film to haul anymore. No, no, you can digitally send it, you know? <laughs> and eventually you started getting jobs as your own as music editor, Beauty and the Beast. That Was was that your first series? Um, that was my first series. Irma was a great mentor. She taught me everything she knew. She had started very early on and ultimately left me her business and taught me to work a business as well as you know, become a top-notch music editor. And I, my main composer was David Shire. And I worked with Elmer. I worked with a lot of different composers back in the day. With Terrence Blanchard, we were on Eve's Bayou. We were at the theater for the premiere. And he turned to me and he goes, I don't remember writing that cue. And I said, you didn't. I tracked it. <laughs> Tracking is, you know, putting it together in a different way for a different scene. And uh, he learned a lesson, you know, that music editors could do this. And that's one of the biggest advantages, I think, of the digital stuff is like, you know, back in oh, the day with tape, like tracking a cue and tracking, like you said, it's <laughs> taking a piece of music and like cutting it and rearranging it and just taking something that's already been recorded and changing it with whatever tools you have to change it to make it fit a new scene. Right. And doing that with a razor blade, that's a whole different level. A whole of, different level. You know, there's, like there's, you know scraping and using acetone and in in film music tracks were always three channels left right center um sound was always just mono you know now i go to a mix stage and wow it's uh atmos is it, are we going to mix an atmos or five one and there's a yeah, whole five new one, one seems seems tiny now compared to it atmos. does or it seems so small and all of our sessions whenever you would create music for a TV show or a movie, it was always with a live orchestra because there weren't synthesizers, you know, or there was a guy that was the piano player that used synthesizers, but that wasn't the main thing. So for Designing Women, which was a half hour sitcom that I did in the 80s, we had a 35 piece orchestra. Right. You know, for most of the movies that I did, even the TV movies, we had an 80 piece orchestra. It was great. You just threw out TV movies there, like, oh, well, even the TV. You did, I counted, 73 TV movies. Yeah, those days we did a lot of movies. <laughs> That's a lot of movies. And yeah. and you said uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast was your first show. That was my first And that was solo. your first Emmy nomination as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. First show, first Emmy nomination. Uh, yeah, it was a different, we started a little bit in digital, not, music wise but the way that we would create notes for our composers 
prior to computers, we did it on a typewriter and composers were an amazing group of people because they would only see the film or the TV show, the episode once in a theater. And then that was it. They would go back. I would type up notes like, you know, one second, the guy turns his head to the right. Two seconds, he starts saying this dialogue. And it was pages and pages of notes. And that's what they wrote to. That was the music. That was how they wrote their music was to this breakdown that I would do. And the next time they saw it was in a scoring stage with the, you know, musicians and no, no audio, just the picture and the music. And sometimes it worked. Sometimes you had to make changes on the fly and they were fascinating to watch. And I loved it. The job was so different. It was so different. They were so talented. The, The musicians, you know, he would say, I want to make this change. And then all the musicians knew how to take their parts and change them you know, to accommodate. And it, it was a beautiful thing to watch. And every day I had an 80-piece orchestra playing just for me. You know, it was it was really a spectacular time. And I have to say, I did love it. It's hard. When I started uh, as an assistant composer, and and even in the, the beginning of my working as a music editor, we got orchestras a lot, all the time. We did shows where orchestras were like, it was, at that point, it was like considered a bit of a luxury for the, the, the fancier shows. But now it's nobody. Right. It's not nobody, but it's very Dude. rare to get an orchestra every week because, you know, we can make all those sounds. We get an orchestra every week on Only Murders in the Building still. Oh, I love that score. Yeah, too. that's very know, much like cereal. The, yeah, the ones, the ones that uh, there's still those special ones where well, they'll, yeah. they'll, the Hollywood will spend the money, but uh, you know, it's it's not like it was everybody back then. There was no other way there to do it. There was no other way to do it. Like I said, you know, Mike Lang was our our main pianist at the time but he also had you know synthesizers and he would add some stuff and people were like wow it sounds like we have more strings and then ultimately the samples started so they would start sampling instruments and it started to sound more and more like the live musicians and um honestly the studios liked the price tag that went with it you didn't have to pay residuals you didn't have to pay for the musicians the studio when you can cut 80 people off your payroll. Exactly. And, and, you know, weekly 45 musicians for a television series. So they went to digital. And you you st- you kind of specialized in TV movies there for a while. Oh, yeah. We used to call them Women in Jeopardy films. It was like every <laughs> Sunday night there was a woman in Jeopardy and she would survive. And I, I did specialize in those um, movies of the, what they called miniseries. Right. You know, so I did things which now they call limited series, but in those days they were called miniseries. Um, and then I also started my company and I would have my music editors that I hired do some of the other series that I just didn't have time for. Over the fun. course of your career as a music editor, and we're going to get to where you, how you magically <laughs> became something else, but... Over the course of your career as a music editor, you did, you, like you said, you started your first series was what, that was 88? Yeah. For Beauty and the Beast. You went through, and then in 2000, so 12 years later, you got this, wait, I don't want to skip over this very important little detail about that, like whatever, a little over a decade that you were an incredibly decorated and successful Hollywood music editor. You got in 91 an Emmy nomination for Ironclad. 
And then in 96, an Emmy nomination for Streets of Laredo, thrice Emmy-nominated music editor. On top of the world, (laughs) everyone's like, oh man, Lori Slomka, that's the music editor. And then you decided like, you know what? China strike. I'm going to be a post supervisor. Okay. What what is that? I it, interesting enough, I was on a scoring stage with Terrence Blanchard. We were doing a movie called Caveman's Valentine. It a very complicated score and a fabulous f- score and I love I mean Terrence Blanchard is an amazing composer, amazing musician. Genius. Um I was on the mix stage and I wasn't having fun. And I thought I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't want to listen to music. I'm not enjoying it. I finished the mix and I called Terrence and I said, I retired. I don't want to do this anymore. And he understood, you know, I mean, I I was becoming disillusioned with the way producers were working, studios were working. Um, I had a friend who I'd worked with. She was a post producer for many, many years. And I did all these Hallmark movies with her. And she said to me, you've done more, you spent more time on a mixed stage than anybody else because of the amount of movies and TV shows you've done. So you understand post sound. The only thing I need to do is teach you picture, you know, doing a uh, editorial and finishing. So at night while her children were doing homework at her dining room table, she was teaching me how to process film and cut negative and what you had to do. And then she gave me a job on Children of Dune, which was the very first picture shot on uh, HD, where in those days the, the deck was still tethered to the camera because they didn't have anything else. And so that was technically the first show that I did. As a post, as a post producer, post supervisor, there's they're pretty much the same thing. A post supervisor and a post producer are the same. Thing. Great, and the reason I wanted you, well, uh, uh, one of the main reasons I wanted you to to be here to help us understand something is the post producer. The, who what? There's so many producers. The title almost means nothing right. outside of Hollywood. Like, what does a producer even mean? Uh, the easiest way that I explain it to people is I say it's management. Right, yes. like the producers are the management. So we've got post producer who, if if you ask people like who's on the sound team, that's probably the name that wouldn't pop into people's heads immediately, but is the person who is probably the most responsible in the end for what the show really sounds like. So why don't you, like if people ask you what is a post producer, how do you like in a nutshell explain your job? It, you know, in a nutshell, having known where <clears throat> I came from, To me, it's the best part of everything because I'm still working with the composers, the music editors, the sound supervisors, the mix stage, and the picture editors. I get everything. So as a post-producer, I am in charge of hiring the editors, the assistant editors, putting together bids from the sound houses. I try to go with the same guys. You know, you start relationships with people and you want, you know, there's a comfort zone that comes with that. It's like, I know that I can trust, you know, this guy, he's always going to take care of me, even as the technology changes and I can't always keep up with it. I know that my sound supervisor and my mixers are going to take good care of me. Composers are usually hired by the director and or the executive producer showrunner. 
And most of them, you know, I still know, I know what they need. I know what they, they technically have to do and the time that they have to do it. Um, I'm always very kind to the music editors because I know what they do. And then I also <laughs> have to deal with visual effects and try to basically, I, I say that it's like air traffic control. You know, I have to make sure that everybody is getting what they need, communicate, sit down with the sound supervisors very often and say, you know, this is what we're looking for, especially with sounds that don't exist in real life. Um, you know, trying to figure out a sound that will work to, to to give the audience an idea of what we're going for as creatives. So you do have a bit of a creative edge to it. Um, just working with all of them, with sound and music in particular, because I do have a, a history with them. And then picture, I have to deal with the color correction. And, you know, the show that I'm doing right now, there's 150 visual effects in the first episode. That is 30 minutes. That's it? Only 150? Yeah, 30, 30 minute minutes? show. Oh, yeah. my God. And, you know, the composers are, are And all of that's under your purview yes. now. Everything that happens in post-production... They all, we all work for you. Yes. I yeah. don't know of, and nobody I know has ever heard of a music editor who moved up to be post-producer. It is, uh, it's a ladder that doesn't exist that somehow you managed to climb. <laughs> <laughs> it was just good timing. You know, when I was a music editor, there wasn't such, there wasn't that position. There wasn't an associate producer or... There's so many different titles for what I do. Co-producer, associate producer, post-producer, post-supervisor, all are in inter intermingled. They pretty much mean the same thing. Right. And they, they didn't exist. You know, the studio would hire the composer. And then I would, the composer just hired me. Um, same with the sound company. You know, studio would hire them and that was it. And, and when you said you retired... As a music editor, you weren't kidding. You were just done. I, I you know, I finished. I, I was done. I mean, if I could think of one story that sums up your personality better than any story, it's, yeah, so I was on top of the world. Like, it was awesome at my job. Everybody thought I was the best, but it just wasn't fun. So I stopped. <laughs> that, that's exactly <laughs> it. I wasn't enjoying. The day that I turned on the radio in my car and didn't want to listen to music, and, you know, I had always been a, I, I played guitar and piano and I loved, loved, loved music. And I didn't want to listen to it. And I thought, okay, this is a problem because I was so angry at the way things were turning. I'm going to, you know, a funny story that happened to me. Uh, you know, interestingly, it's probably at about the same amount of time where you retired from music <laughs> editing. I'm driving home from work and a song comes on the radio and I look down and I see that it's a pop, it's a pop song. It's like a very, I'm not going to say who it was, but it's a very popular pop song. And I didn't recognize the song, but I recognized the title. You know, I knew it was a popular song that had just come out. And I thought, and it was, you know, like a pop artist, like not someone I would normally listen to. And I was like, all right, let me, let me listen to see what it is that people like about this song. You know, it's my job to know this stuff. Let me just listen. So I'm listening for like 10 or 15 seconds in, and I'm like, I just can't. I just, there's nothing to like. You know, she she's not trying to write good music. She's trying to sell albums and get you to right. look at her butt. And it's a different job than, you know, being a songwriter, like in the traditional sense. Of... So I changed the station. And as soon as I changed the station, it's like 
if I were a music editor, if I were music editing my that scene, I would have said it, the timing is too perfect to be realistic. So you have to sh- make it more realistic. <laughs> I push the button and it's like right on the first lyric of The Pretender by Jackson Brown. Like this, you know, like a masterpiece of a song. Right. And in that moment, it hit me, like, what was the difference between what she was doing and what he was doing? And it was none of the things that we learned in music school. Like, you know, it wasn't like his her pitch or her intonation or her vocal control or none of that stuff. It was her intent and his intent. Like, he had something he wanted you to think about and something he wanted you to feel. And she just wanted you to buy her records. Like, it was a different, they're doing a different job. And then the next thought that hit me was, oh, my God, I've become her. Like, I just take money all day to work on music and then I listen to talk radio on the way home because I'm like yes. done with it already. And I like made a decision like that knob of being a, a, you know, a musician for hire and a musician for passion. It slowly turns down until it clicks off and you never noticed it happen. And and when it when I noticed it, like I went home and wrote like 10 songs and like recorded an album. I was like, I've got to get it back. And it's like, you have to do something in that moment because when your passion becomes your job, something something happens eventually. They taint each other, you know? I think that there are people out there that it doesn't, that doesn't happen. I think in this industry in particular, it's always changing. Uh, I'm learning something new every, every show that I do, I learn something new. And it's because of those changes, even, you know, the economy and streaming now and everything else that goes with it, everything has to change with it. And sometimes those changes don't necessarily make things better. Well, it's funny because like, I never cut a piece of tape in my life or a piece of film ever. And the joke that I always make to people is like digital audio and I arrived in Hollywood on the same flight. (laughs) And like, that's why I have a career because I was like a young kid who knew how to use computers back when that was a thing. Um, But you that's like the moment you stopped. Yeah. You stopped right when it all was going digital. You were like, I'm done. I'm done. And now I'm going to be your boss. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how we met. You yes. and I met because- uh Rectify? Rectify. Yeah, I, Rectify. I have a sweatshirt over there, but it's out of reach. I'm, One of my all-time favorite jobs. Why? I loved working on Rectify. I loved the family element. I loved our, our producer, Ray. Um, writer, amazing writer. I loved our cast. I loved everything about it. It was great storytelling. Um, our composer was lovely. I loved hanging out with him. Gabriel Mann. Gabe Mann. Uh, even came to Georgia with us, hung out at, in Georgia. You know, Gabe and I have been friends since like fourth grade. He's, I just love him. <laughs> you know, so there, there were some, there's jobs like that where you go, oh, this has been a great experience emotionally. And creatively. And Rectify gave me everything. Then there's other jobs. I did a a show with Michael Mann called Luck, which was fun because we all worked together. I met fabulous people on that show and we have remained friends. But there was nothing creative about it. It was a whole, you know, Michael Mann has his own thing and he does it his own way. But we all connected in a different way. And that was, that also was very rewarding. The people that I met working on that, we always said we were in the trenches together. They were long days, long hours. And Michael knows, you know, what he wants and that's it. And he's very into music. And I learned a lot about music from Michael Mann. You know, he really, 
went out on a limb and I'd be like, oh, you know, that's not going to work. And then all of a sudden you'd be like, oh yeah, that really does work. <laughs> um, so I still get, you know, I was a producer on it, but I still had that, you know, touch with music. And I get to go in there and try things. It's a lot of times then I'll play it back for the showrunner creator and either they like it or they don't. You know, an interesting, one of the stories is I was doing a show called Life on Mars and there was this whole sequence and I said, what if we played Whiter Shade of Pale? And you were the producer on Life on Mars. I was the post-supervisor post on Mars, yeah. Okay. And we turned the picture black and white. And they were like, I don't know about that. So we tried it and it was really cool and we did it. And that's in the show. And it's in the show. And it was just one of those moments where you just, you, I have the ability now to just try things. And so once I realized I could have the best of all worlds, you know, still interact with composers and, and music editors and sound supervisors. And I love being on a mixed stage. It's my favorite place in the entire world. And I would also be in the cutting room and working with the studio and taking notes and learning all these new things as we go, the cameras, all of that. I start as a post-producer, I start any project three to five weeks prior to when they start filming. This was a very big advantage that I learned about. Three to five days, be weeks before they start filming, I'm on all the way through filming, all the way through post. And then I have to deliver the show, which usually takes another six weeks. So now, you know, when I was a music editor, it was just maybe 15 weeks at the most. And now I'm on these shows for a year and a half. It's long-term employment. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that is long-term employment. It is. It really is. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's hard for me to express to you what it's like as a music editor to have a post-producer who used to be a music editor. Like I've never been in a situation where like I have a problem to solve or an issue like on Rectify and I turn to you and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, do your, you, I didn't even have to open my mouth. Like you knew exactly what the problem was, exactly what I was going to do to solve, you know, it was like such a pleasure. Yeah. Like something, <laughs> nobody, she used to be an actual music editor and not just any music editor. She was, you know. It, it's, I, the music editors, you know, yourself, all of these people that I've hired, I have, you know, a little team that I, I, I love, but you also just can't pull one over my eyes. It's like, I've had a, a couple of young guys come up and try to tell me something that I know isn't true. It's like, look, dude, I, I know what it takes, you know? It's funny because one of the, one of the tools in, in the bag of those of us who have technical jobs is that our bosses tend to not exactly understand exactly what it is we can do. So, <laughs> so sometimes we're like, oh yeah, that's going to take uh, three hours. Not really, but you yeah, know, like, yeah. <laughs> and I pretty much know, well, I know how long it takes on film, cut it in half. I'm not great at Pro Tools, but I know how to use a Pro Tools. You know, um, it's not one of, it's not something that I could sit down and do what you do, you know, but I know enough about it that I could sit on a mix stage and move some things around if I had to. But I do know how to cut music. I do know how to cut sound. I do know what it takes. If someone wanted to do what you do, you're like, I want to be a post, I want to be a, a post producer. That's my, I want to have dip my hands in all the aspects of post-production and have everybody be able to just have this idea. Hey, what if we use this song? And, and then everybody scrambles and makes it happen. Like yeah. if someone wanted that for their life, what, what advice do you give them? I, I do 
a lot of lectures for the colleges and the universities. I always start with become a PA. That's a production assistant. A production assistant in post. Really try anything because I believe in this industry we have so many opportunities that other other companies, other businesses don't have. Start as a PA, get people lunch, but ask questions and 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 talk to people and see what people are doing. And people in this industry in general in post, you know, it's a solitaire kind of thing. So they love talking to, you know, most people love talking to young people and and seeing what they know and and teaching some of the stuff to them and then become what's called a post coordinator, which is, you know, they're all crappy jobs, not going to lie. It's all the paperwork and the filing. But my coordinators, I have six coordinators that are now my competition, you know, because we'll take time to train if you really want to do it. My current um, post supervisor that works with me, she was my PA. And I said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And she said, I want your job. And I said, okay, you're hired. You know, so it's just getting your foot in the door, usually as a PA. And it's not a union job, so you don't have to worry about unions. Um, because a union jobs, it's a whole different way of getting in. Um, did you know Tristan became a producer at Marvel? So Tristan, just so people understand, is one of those. He's one of the young guys that, that I, I trained, trained. And now he's producing and the show at Marvel. And now he's producing for Marvel on, you know, the Disney Channel. The, you, so yeah. You, I'm very proud of him. That's why. I, I, <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, this is a sort of side note here. You know, I have also started training music editors. And now my music editors have started going out into the world and having their own careers. And like, you know, uh, 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 Andres Loxy, one of an incredible music editor who's currently nominated for Cobra Kai. And I feel this sense of pride that Cobra Kai got nominated. And then I'm like, wait a second, that's my competition. Exactly. You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, you get those people out there who are just like, uh, I love it. The, I uh, love to see their success. And um, uh, I'm always happy that they've passed through my life and we've had a good experience. It's all about, I'm lucky because I love what I do. Love the people. That do you, Ever miss being a music editor? No. Not for a second. Not for a second. That's pretty funny. And not for a second. I don't miss. I mean, I see I see what, uh, hopefully nobody wants to be a full-time music editor. I see what people try to do to music editors, and it's really unfair. Well, I appreciate that. And <laughs> so I am always very fair with my music editors, because I do know what, what goes into it. Same with my sound team. I know what it takes. And I know how underappreciated sound and music is for any project, for any project anywhere, film, TV. Um, and so I try to treat them respectfully and give them what they need. But there's a lot of producers out there that think all you do is push a couple of buttons and something's cut. And if you can't do it that way, they're, they're hollering at you. And I just don't believe in that. I don't want to be on the receiving end of that. I think there's a lot of disrespect. I appreciate that you see it as disrespect. I see it as more of like a lack of understanding. Yeah. Like it's very Ignorance. hard for people to to really wrap their heads around how much work goes into making, you know, the soundtrack. And I, I don't mean just the music. I mean, the, all the sounds yeah. involved in anything. And uh, even a, a lot of post-producers still don't get it. And a lot of that is because you spend your days in the room with, the pic in, in, in an office with picture editors and the sound department somewhere else. Oh, yeah. And so 
most post producers haven't had the experience of ever even having been in the sound department or seen how how many people are working how hard and you know on how many little details and it is it does make you in my opinion like one of the best post producers in Hollywood oh, that so you understand the sound side of it as you know I don't know how well you understand the picture side of it because I don't understand it at all <laughs> but better than any sound any post supervisor I've ever met because it's your world it's where you came from you know it is but it goes back to what I was saying if you want to be a writer or a director you know yes serve your time in post because the more you can learn about how everything is done the better you will always be at your job um, I highly recommend it. You know, if you want to be a director, spend time in post. Understand what we can do to help you as a director or as a writer. Because writing in post, we're just rewriting the scripts because we're telling the same story, but we can change it around. Right. And we can change the mood with the music. And we can change, you know, if you've ever watched or had the opportunity to watch a horror film with no sound and music, it's pretty dull. And then you add that music and that sound and I won't watch them because it's too scary, <laughs> you know? So music and, and sound can change the dynamic of any TV show or movie. Anyway, it changes it completely. Learn what other people do. You know, I don't know how to do visual effects because it's part of a world that I've never done. So I went and spent time at a visual effects company and I hung out with a visual effects supervisor. That's a hard job, you and know? Getting, but, and, and not that it's a, really on topic for this show, but like you said, it's taking over. Everything is absolutely. visual effects now. So you should know something about it. And I think that it's very important as a producer to understand everything that is what we're trying to achieve with the people that are working with us. And visual effects is one of those things, you know, in the, in, in the old days, you know, visual effects were for things like explosions and laser beams and aliens. Oh, and, yeah. but now it's like, we, we, we do these, you know, uh, 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 regular old shows, That's sitcoms, true. dramas, and there's a hundred visual effect shots in there. Absolutely. The audience doesn't even know what is and isn't a visual effect. No. And, uh, I don't sometimes, you know, it's funny <laughs> on rectify. I had an interesting technical issue as a musical music editor that I had never had before because all of a sudden there was this new technology that allowed the them to vary to oh, change the speed. speed of the shots so if an actor turned his head they could change the speed at which he turned his head and uh that was starting to happen all over rectify and I'd We'd have a piece of music that was to picture, and the picture didn't change. The cut didn't change, but it doesn't fit anymore. Yeah. And I'm like, what happened? And like, oh, they sped up his head tone. Like, oh, I can't speed up the music for that one right. shot, you know? <laughs> and it's like these whole, these like, you know, tools. And tools. Yeah. They're really just about tools. tools. And uh, yes, they were non-existent when I started, but they are there now. And it's understanding how to work with them and what will work ultimately and what it does to a music editor, you know, when I'm sitting there going, well, how, how bad is this going to make it for the composer? And we're working with a lot of composers now that are songwriters, you know, that they're, they're from a band and, you know, having to work with them. And that becomes a huge um, job for a music editor because now they have to work with composers that really don't know how to compose. Right, it's not but they're the same just great. Job, yeah, it's but not they're the great same. musicians and they're great, great you know, musicians. They can get the music right, but getting it to picture—that's absolutely. A whole so that discussion. becomes the music editor, and I don't think people understand 
you know, I've had that a lot of times where people don't understand, oh, it's the music editor that actually made it work. Yeah, we're like the visual effects. You don't even realize we're there. Exactly. And that's what you want. <laughs> you know, you don't want those bad edits where you're sitting to sitting there and all of a sudden the music goes, Ugh, and you're like, oh my God. Yeah, that's um, when I figured they didn't have a music editor. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they made some picture editor sound guy do it. And, the, you know, it's the same with the sound teams. They, we, our expectations of them these days is to have it bigger, better in less time. And I'm of the theory, well, I get that you have a budget because it is a business and there is a budget, but I will feed you the entire show as often as you want it so you know what's coming. A lot of people don't do that until a picture is locked. And I'm like, no, it helps them if they know in advance. You're saying one of the secrets is collaboration. Yeah, always, always. And, and not trying to keep things secret and letting people know that this isn't going to be the final but this is what's going on, and this is where I think it's going, and I, I want you to be aware of it now and not when you just have two weeks to work on it. A lot of times I define my job as professional collaborator. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh... And I'm fortunate that I get to work with, with everyone. And there's a balance between music and sound. And there's often these, these strange places when I did True Detective where it's like, well, is that music? Or is that sound? And, you know, when a composer and a music editor and a sound supervisor and a mixer can all work together and we can all sit there and make a balance on a mix stage where you don't know, but you feel it, you just feel it. That's just a wonderful feeling. You know, it really is. And, and that's when everybody is working together instead of, you know, my dad's big thing was, oh, I'm a big, you know, I'm a doing all this sound and I would say I was a music editor you don't walk away humming the visual effects you know you hum the music so nowadays we kind of combine them all and I there's so that. many different um, ways to do it and it's just a great great collaboration and most of that happens on a mix stage you have a surprising nomination for true detective oh yeah you're nominated for a the black reel awards oh yeah do you know that no what's that <laughs> it's it's an award given to shows that help move forward the African American community. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, see, see. I'm learning every day. Um, <laughs> that, I did not know that. That's a, something that I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, we get nominated for a lot of awards that don't even bother to tell us we've been nominated unless yeah. we win. It's yeah. a weird thing. I, I again, I first of all, I never heard of it, and I never knew that. And it was, you know, that was a that was an interesting show for sound. Because Mahershala and Stephen play these different ages, you know, young, middle-aged, and old. And it would happen within, you know, a scene. And so it was the music and the sound that changed um, to kind of help the picture portray what era we were in. Um, that was with T-Bone. And it was just, you know, again, having to use these different sound and, and music collaborations to help us tell that part of the story was very important to that story. What about now? Are you working on anything interesting right now? I'm working with, uh, on, it's so bizarre. It was one of those, it's called, I am a Virgo, I'm a Virgo, Boots Riley. I'm a Virgo too, actually. Are you? Yeah. I'm an Aries. Um, when I read the first script, I spoke with Boots. Boots is, you know, a great musician. 
And I said, I, I don't care if you hire me or not, but you've got to tell me what happens. <laughs> <laughs> it was such an interesting script. Um, and it is, it, it, it's so interesting. I can't even really explain what it is. It's funny. It's touching. It's it really makes you think about society. Um, it's, it's just, it's a 30 minute show that'll be on Amazon next year. Can't wait to see it. It's, it's bizarre. This it has is. been super fun, Laurie. It has been wonderful. Thank you, you for making me feel comfortable. Oh, <laughs> thank you for sharing all of your experiences with us. It really, you have such a unique perspective. Like nobody's really been through the Hollywood story that you have. I've been it's, around. It's really, uh, we are, and we are all grateful that you have been around. It has been so much fun working with you and knowing you and having you here. And I appreciate it. And, you know, it's a fun job. I've been doing it a long time. And hopefully for a lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure introducing you to one of my close friends. Can't wait for you to come back. Click the subscribe button. Follow us on social media. And uh, we'll see you next time at The Sounds of Hollywood. Hollywood.